Well, welcome everyone. Today is June 2nd, 2021. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly. It's a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. And you can submit your questions on Facebook Live. And I'm so excited for my guest today is Emma Weipskopf, who's a neurologist with SBMC Neurology. Uh, thank you, Emma, for coming. And we're so happy you're here. My pleasure. A little bit about Emma real quick. Um, she has her medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which I've never been to Albert Einstein College of Medicine, but I think that's the coolest name for a medical school. Um, and also for a uh, neurologist who went there. I think that is so interesting. Um, did a residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center, also in New York, served as the chief uh, resident from 2005 to 2006. And then uh, if that wasn't enough, went ahead and did a fellowship at New York University Medical Center. Uh, and she joined SVMC in 2020 and is board certified in uh, by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. So Emma, like I said, we are so excited. Why don't you just start off a little bit before you went to Albert Einstein and did all those cool things. Uh, where did you grow up and, and tell us about your childhood? Um, well, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, actually, um, sure. Bloomington, Indiana. It's actually, I guess it's really a mid-sized town. It's a college town. Um, it's where the Indiana University is located. And my dad was a psychology professor there. Oh. Um, and it was a very diverse community. It had a lot of arts. It was a very big school. The school is probably about 35,000 undergraduates. So it's, you know, lots of young people there. So it's a really nice place to grow up and go to high school. And I lived there through high school. And then after that, I had my heart really set on going to Brown. So I came out to the East Coast to go to Brown. And I actually never really left the East Coast after that. I've stayed out here the whole rest of the time for all my training. Um, one funny thing is that now, recently, since I started working here, I moved to Williamstown, Massachusetts. And um, one of the ironies is that when I was looking at colleges with my dad on my college tour, the college tour that lots of young people take who are in high school, um, right. you, we looked at Williams as one of the schools. And my initial impression was, I will never live here. It's way too remote. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I know. And now here, you know, many, many years later, um, it's, I, I call it my home. Um, and it's a beautiful drive every day from Williamstown up here to Bennington. I really look forward to driving both directions. So pretty. Wow, um, yeah. And Williamstown's like a really good place. I think for my kids, I'm excited for them to be in a college town now. Sure. And it's, it's a good size college town, you know, it's, um, it's not too big and it's also not too small. And I just think it's, uh, we have a lot of medical staff that, that live, uh, in, in your area. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. And nursing staff. So was, did your father have an influence in you going into medicine? He had a big influence. He was a big influence. And actually, maybe I'll even come back to that later because it's a, there's a lot of stories involved with that. But yes, I grew up, um, you know, learning a lot about brain sciences, but from a different perspective, from a clinical psychology perspective. So he was really focused on human emotion. Um, he is a psychotherapist in addition to being a professor there, he had a big clinical psychology private practice um, where he saw patients, couples, and individuals. And so I really grew up talking a lot about that and learning about his interests. Um, 
I wasn't initially thinking of going into medicine. In fact, when I went to Brown, I was going to study history, uh-huh. but somehow through my college experience, I wound up taking more and more biology classes, trying to think of possible organic bases for all the things that I talked about growing up. So he was a very big influence. So I think a lot of the audience, and, and um, I'm doing this a little bit early here before we get into neurology, but a lot of the audience um, doesn't probably recognize the crossover between psychiatry uh, and psychology, but psychiatry and neurology. And um, when people see that you have a board certification in the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, what does that mean? Well, I mean, it really, it's really an umbrella board that, you know, we all take the same test, but the neurologists have, you know, an exam to become certified that is weighed more heavily with topics in neurology and the psychiatrists have exam weighed more heavily to topics in psychiatry. But we do have to learn a lot about psychiatry, about the medications they use um, and vice versa, Um, because, you know, neurology and psychiatry do cooperate a lot. Absolutely. They use the same organ, which is very uh, important. Yeah, I think my recollection is that about 75% of your boards would be neurology and 25% psychiatry. And then the the opposite for someone like Dr. Reeve, who is a psychiatrist in town, right? I think that sounds about right. Yeah, that's great. So then you, so you, you decided to get into neurology. Tell us a little bit about what drew you to neurology versus some other medical specialties. Well, actually, it's funny because even before that, I, um, you know, it was it was kind of a winding road to go into medicine, and I ended up taking a few pre med classes after college because I because I had a double major, biology and history. But one of the things that really influenced me, I just think this is um, an interesting fact coming from where we are over the last year, is that um, I had a period of time prior to medical school where I worked at the NIH um, in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And I was doing HIV research, but the head of my lab was none other than the famous Dr. Fauci. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he was, he was another real influential character. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously I met him only when we were sitting at long conference tables and he was at one end and I was like way down at the other end, but um, being, being part of uh, working in a lab, I think that really made me realize that I like solving puzzles. And I think neurology is oftentimes about trying to solve puzzles, um, puzzles that my dad raised, questions that my dad raised that I was hoping maybe I could find some concrete answers to. Right. That's actually, and you know, um, I will tell you my own personal observation and that of my colleagues is that the folks that go into neurology um, really are the smartest of the smart, uh, the most cerebral, and there's no pun intended there, uh, because it is a different language when you talk about your own field, and especially neurology, um, and, and all the information you have to learn, and then process pretty quickly. Uh, do you come up with your diagnosis, like, right away, or is this something you have to really think about, like the, um, you know, the painting of the doctor sitting with the textbook, flipping through it, trying to come up with an answer? Mm-hmm. Well, I think about, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the, as many specialties, but I feel this is particularly important in neurology. I mean, really a lot of it is the history and a lot of it is the physical exam. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you use your history and your physical exam, your neurologic exam to really try to find, you know, localize things or formulate sort of a, a list of possibilities. And then you can use some of the tests that we order frequently to try to rule that in or out. I think one of the most challenging 
things about neurology. And one of the things that's the most different from what I was expecting is that there are many, many times, many times more than I thought that you don't find an answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you look and you use every test and you examine the patient and you have theories about what might be going on. And then in the end, you actually can't find an explanation. And that can be really frustrating for patients and also frustrating for the doctors. So, um, I think when that's the case, oftentimes you kind of have to partner with the patient and say, look, we didn't find the answer to explain, you know, your tingling or whatever it is, whatever sure. symptom may be, but we've ruled out a lot of the really bad, scary things in the, in the process. And so whatever it is, it's probably not something that's going to, you know, cause you a lot of death and disability. And I think just the reassurance that comes from knowing that you kind of cross all of a bunch of important things off the list can be helpful, but that's, what's different than what I expected when I went into it. Wow. So, you know, um, I, I totally echo those thoughts. It's really important that people understand sometimes we don't find the answer, but we are excluding a lot of the quote bad things out there and and that does give some reassurance but there's also that pressure to put a name on it what is it that i have and sometimes you know we have to be transparent and honest say we don't know there's so much about the human body pathophysiology and physiology itself uh, but we we do know a lot about the, the bad things and we can try to exclude them you also brought up something else that i like and that is it's a little misconception that doctors see patients and then they do an imaging study to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's sort of the opposite. The imaging study is to either confirm or deny um, all of the stuff you talked about, the history taking, the Mm -hmm. uh, physical examination, and just the background information that you've studied. And I'm sure that's particularly true Mm -hmm. in neurology. Yeah. I think that's been um, one of the harder things about COVID was, you know, the period of time where we weren't seeing people, people in person, especially for me, because I was new here. And for the, when I was seeing people for the first time, it really is important to get to put your hands on them, to be able to examine them, to feel the tone, to see how they walk. Um, and that's where you're getting a lot of um, the answers to your questions, or at least a lot of the hypotheses about what might be going on. Right. And it also points out why, as you say, um, in, to, to be even more forward, telemedicine has some great aspects to it that are are helping healthcare, but it also has the drawbacks and it's not the panacea uh, to delivering healthcare. So a combination of the two, uh, uh, telemedicine when it's appropriate, but also that physical connection uh, with your doctor is is so important. And especially again, in neurology, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I kind of asked you this ahead of time so that you would be a little prepared, but tell us something that uh, is fascinating that you know about the brain or nervous system uh, for the public, because there's so many books by neurologists that, uh, that are famous for their crazy presentations of a neurologic condition. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot, you know, there's, there are many syndromes that I could talk about, um, or, um, you know, things that localize, like, for example, stroke patients that don't recognize a body part or don't actually Mm -hmm. even realize that they've had a stroke. But one fun factoid I just learned recently is that while we have a hundred billion neurons and then many supporting cells, we lose 190,000 every day. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's a a sad fact. That is odd. Uh, I was uh, taking care of a patient over the weekend that had something called transient global amnesia, which of course you you see a lot, but um, it's a fascinating presentation for the public and something that I thought about actually uh, as I was taking care of the patient. I was like, wow, being a neurologist uh, is interesting because you see so many of these 
really difficult to explain uh, syndromes and you have to come up and figure out what's up, but then you have to treat them. And um, do you find that difficult? Yeah, I mean, especially with things like transient global amnesia, where we still really don't know what the basis for it is, you know, right. so, uh, you know, we, we have to treat them as though, you know, we have to treat them basically as though we're taking care of what they could be. Could this have been a TIA? You know, right. should we optimize their risk factors for stroke? Could this have been a seizure? You know, should, you know, should we go down that road? But yes, it's very difficult. And then people say, why did this happen? And a lot of times, again, like I said, the answer is we really don't know. Right. We don't know. We try to investigate to see if there is a cause that we can correct. And if not, so, so let's talk about your own practice here then at SVMC. What do you primarily see and, and, uh, and treat here uh, in this community? Well, I mean, you know, my role here is, is, is as a general neurologist, which is a challenging role because it's extremely broad and most people do subspecialize in neurology now and do a fellowship to get more training in certain different kinds of neurologic disorders. But um, I, you know, I, I have tended to see myself in part as taking on a lot of things that I'm really interested in, like epilepsy and migraine in particular. Um, and then if I, if there's something that's more advanced that I don't really know exactly like that needs somebody with specialized training, I have a lot of colleagues in the area now that I work closely with other neurologists that I've met over the years, you know, that have specialized training in say movement disorder or MS, if it's just something where I really need to get the subspecialist involved. So the things that I really like to treat and work um, well on with patients, partnering with them are really migraine. I really like working with patients with migraine. And I really feel like I've already made a lot of a difference in like the field of epilepsy here, just because, um, you know, it's, it's very scary to have a new onset seizure. Um, there's a lot of counseling and risk benefit analysis that comes into discussing whether or not you're going to be on medication. And I, I find that to be a very rewarding field. It's great. So you typically see patients that have already seen their regular doctor and then have, or, or the emergency department and, yeah. and are referred to you. Yes. In that regard. Yes. And I think that, I mean, I think that if I had to pick one group of doctors that I work with the most closely, aside from other neurologists, it's really primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having a close relationship with primary care doctors is important to me. And I also tell patients how important I feel it is for them because my role still ultimately is as a consultant. So, um, you know, they're, pri they're the primary care doctor feels they want my input. I try to come up with a plan and then hope that they can work with their primary care doctor sometimes to implement that plan. So when you um, see these patients from the primary care physicians and you do your physical exam and your history, are you doing any type of, of procedures for the patients? Yes. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we do need um, imaging studies like MRI or CAT scans to rule in or out. We're thinking, and then I, one of my special, my special training is in doing electromyography and nerve conduction studies, which is helpful for um, conditions like carpal tunnel or radiculopathy, but also more things like generalized neuropathy. So and the primary care doctors, I think, have now come on to rely on me and doing that test for them sometimes, even if they don't need my help with the diagnosis in other ways. Right. And then um, also with the migraine treatment, are you doing any procedures there? Um, yeah, I do occipital nerve blocks and trigger point injections. I had in the past done Botox and I'm trying to get that going again, but it just takes a lot of focus trying to, you know, anyway, I, I'm hoping to do Botox too, but right now I'm doing occipital nerve blocks and trigger point injections. 
And that's great. And, and all of those can be, you know, for a certain population of people with, uh, with migraines and other headache disorders, I mean, it can be life-changing. I talk to people, you know, all the time. It doesn't work for everyone, just like all medicine doesn't, uh, but they're able to maintain work and maintain a high quality of life after, you know, maybe even some regular type of interventions like that. So we're really excited you're here for that. I have to tell you that uh, sending patients far away was, was problematic until you arrived. Um, let's think about a little bit. I'm going to back away from neurology for just a few minutes and just go back to your, your personal experiences. What do you do when you're not a, a neurologist? Well, I have um, two kids, 12 and ages 12 and nine, and they both just started in the Williamstown Elementary School. Um, well, now it's been almost a year, but so I manage a lot of their activities, soccer, and they're both dancers. They do like three or four dance classes a week. Um, oh. Yeah. yeah. So that's when I, tomorrow night I'm doing their dress rehearsal and Friday nights, their performance. And then also I'm a singer in a band and I've been with the same band for probably seven or eight years. Um, we play all around Berkshire County, Massachusetts until COVID. But we've managed to keep practicing virtually through all of COVID every single Tuesday night we practice. And we are going to practice. I mean, we're going to play here at the Dutchman's Tavern in August. Oh, we, yeah, we're going to play around um, Berkshire County this summer now that we can have live music, music again. So, so that's you're what the, I do for fun. You're the first rock star I've had on my show. I'm very yeah. excited about that. I, I might be able to get you a backstage pass. That would be great. And how can the audience, um, if they're interested, download your music? Well, we have a Facebook page. It's, um, it's Critical Mass Band 1. Um, and it's it's sometimes a little tricky to find as you have to know it's critical mass band one, but, um, we have a Facebook page and we post our gigs on there and there's a few videos on there. We're not like super social media savvy, but that's where they can find us. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Well, so maybe your kids can help you put up uh, some social media accounts, but we will (laughs) add that because I won't remember it. I want to uh, download myself. We will add it to our, our website when we're done here today. Um, all right, so we'll go back. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, we'll yeah. go back a little bit to your practice as we sort of wrap up here. Um, tell me some of the preventative health steps uh, for the conditions you treat. Are, are there, is there much that people can do out there uh, to prevent some of the neurologic conditions that you see? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, you know, again, it's, it's pretty broad. I mean, from, you know, when I see stroke patients, we're talking about things like smoking cessation. When I see people with memory disorders, we talk a lot about um, exercising your brain and doing brain teasers, doing Sudoku, um, you know, really trying to keep cognitively intact. We, you know, I talk to almost every patient about exercise, getting outside, um, you know, whether it be people who are having trouble with balance or um, people who've had strokes or, you know, even people with migraines, you know, trying to get, get out there, get vitamin D. Um, for, you know, for migraine patients, we talk a lot about triggers and keeping a diary to try to help figure out what the best treatment is. So things, simple things like that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So tell me what you, uh, see going on in neurology over the next five to 10 years, what advancements uh, you're excited about? Um, well, more broadly, I think, um, in, in general, I believe that, uh, you know, the like telemedicine has really changed things a lot. And we talk about the negatives, but the positives also are a lot of times when um, I have patients coming in for routine follow-ups to see if how they're doing on their medications, for example, you know, some people that's a real burden 
And so in that way, I think that the last year with the advancement of telemedicine, it's really been helpful for patients like that. Um, I'm hopeful that the electronic health record will continue to sort of improve in general down the road for everyone. So there's better communication between patients and physicians, physicians and physicians, and more efficiencies and more patient safety. Um, In neurology specifically, there's, um, there's a lot of discussion of various different um, gene therapies, like for example, for ALS, like particular mutations in ALS, there's ongoing treatments like gene therapies and um, immunotherapies. Um, And, you know, the other thing is a lot of the research right now, of course, that I see when I look at the journals is on COVID and things to do with COVID, you know, neurological complications of COVID and people who have residual symptoms. So that's been sort of what's been in the neurology news most recently. Do you anticipate uh, seeing many of those people over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think they're, I think, yeah, I think I have fortunately not seen many, but I've seen a small handful. And yeah, I think there, I think we will see a trickle of people who are having just residual cognitive problems from COVID who've been really sick with it or other symptoms, neuropathy, things like that. Right. I, and I completely agree with you. I think one of the misconceptions with a, a big disease like COVID with high morbidity and mortality, in other words, a high disease burden, is that people think they can, if they get the disease and they get over with it, it's done. You know, mm-hmm. um, but that's not, that is true for most, but it's not true for all. And some people have these, as you said, residual symptoms. So that's another reason why doing things like vaccinating uh, is so important at preventing some of these long-term sequelae. And then plus um, there were increase in strokes uh, over the past year in these patients that got COVID and weren't necessarily too sick, but then uh, unfortunately developed blood blood clotting disorders Mm -hmm. and had strokes. Emma, we are so excited that you're here. Uh, I know you started here during the pandemic, so that was a a strange (laughs) way to be introduced into the the Bennington community, Uh, but now we can move past that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we look forward to, to working with you here. And I do, especially as an emergency physician, uh, because I see a lot of neurology that I need I need a neurologist to, to uh, help me with. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today, um, especially our guest, Dr. Emma Weiskopf of SVMC Neurology. I'm also going to thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, and Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. Next week, we have uh, Anor Hutton. She's the executive director of Hunger Free Vermont to discuss food security in Vermont. You can send uh, questions to wellness at svhealthcare.org in advance. Uh, I'm Trey Dobson, and as I say each week, I'd like you to go out and try to find joy in most everything you do, even in the face of adversity, and I will see you next time. Thank you.